Welcome to the Flying Baton, the magical land of beginning band. Coming to you from the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, your host, Charlie Nesmith. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Flying Baton. This week, we interviewed Taya Stockman from the University of Colorado Research Team, who's working on the study entitled Reducing Bioaerosol Emissions and Exposures in the Performing Arts. Just a note to our listeners that this was a video interview, and I screen shared many graphs from the preliminary data and had our guest walk us through it. You'll certainly get a lot out of listening to the audio of this conversation, but if you want to watch the video, head over to theflyingbaton.com or check out our Facebook page. One final note is that this is an ongoing study, and the team's recommendations are subject to change when all of the data is completed and analyzed. Medical professionals still don't know how transmissible COVID-19 is through aerosols, and this team isn't actually studying the transmission rates of that disease specifically. They're strictly studying the aerosol generations of instruments and how to mitigate that. Numerous other teams around the world are studying exactly how coronavirus gets spread, so when they release data on how aerosols play into that, it will be incorporated into this study to make official recommendations for musicians and teachers. All right, everybody, we're here with Taya Stockman. Taya, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. Could you uh, explain a little bit about your background? So I am a PhD student at University of Colorado Boulder, and I'm studying environmental engineering under Shelley Miller, who is my uh, advisor and the PI of the project that I'm working on currently, which is musical performance and how they produce aerosols. Awesome. And what specific role do you have in the study right now? So I am the main person collecting all of the data, and I've been in the lab with every single participant, um, both on the flow visualization side of things. That's not what I'm in charge of, but I'm more in charge of the aerosol measurements. But I've, I've been in both processes, and I understand like what everything is going on because I have interacted with all the musicians. All right. Is your picture some of the pictures that were released in that PDF? Yes. Um, <laughs> I, actually, I do play the clarinet, which they didn't ask me before Like this was dropped on. Shelly Miller's desk, like, do you have anyone who can play an instrument to help us with the study? But it's been really helpful that I do play an instrument. Um, I played clarinet from sixth grade all the way through high school. I couldn't unfortunately do it in college because I just didn't have the time, but I really enjoy playing it. And it was just cool to be able to bring my interest in music to research. And it's been fun doing like preliminary testing where I basically get to like be in a room all by myself and just play music for like actual data analysis, which is pretty fun. That's awesome. Um, tell us a little bit more about your musical background. Um, so I started as like a middle school student wanting to like be in band. And I did it. I decided to do it like all throughout high school. Um, I went to a school that didn't have marching band in high school, but I thought it was pretty interesting marching band. I just really though enjoyed more um, band and orchestral um, performances and Throughout high school, we went to like band competitions, which were really fun. And I got a few like chamber and ensemble awards and stuff when I was in high school, both um, for myself, but then also for um, we had a chamber group um, at my high school, which was really fun to perform in just like a select group of upperclassmen who uh, got to play in a smaller ensemble together. Awesome. Well, it's really great to hear that someone with musical experience is part of the research team. It's really great for us music teachers out there who are anxiously awaiting the results of the study to know that they have people on board who are musical. Yeah, it was kind. Of, it's kind of funny because some of the researchers that I am partnering with um, know nothing about music. I like say, "Oh, 
you know, a tuba player is coming in tomorrow and they have to like type in like, what's a tuba? <laughs> and then they're like, oh, I've seen that before. But it's, I think he even told me he's glad that I'm the one doing, like I'm the one in charge of the project doing all the data collection because he'd have to continuously look up everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's helping me. He's a postdoc. He's helping me with a lot of the technical things and helping me design the experiments. But because I have the musical background and I understand the physical capabilities of different musicians and stuff like that, it, it's like a better way to collaborate. So we don't have to do so many tests with people who aren't outside the research team, because that would just be too intensive for like random volunteers to partake in. Yeah. And you can speak the language with them when you're getting them to demonstrate certain techniques and things, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the scope of the study? Uh, it's it's fairly broad, is my understanding. You guys are looking at a lot of different things, and you've only released a small part so far. Is that correct? Yes. So this is kind of funny. This study initially was brought to us by just two um, people who wanted to know more about like how aerosols were impacting in music. They heard Shelley Miller give a talk, and they're like, that's the person I sh- we should get involved. And it started out really small, and then just came this giant coalition of over 120 um, musical organizations who wanted to be involved. So that's also drastically changed the scope of the project. Initially, we were only going to do like three instruments, um, like much smaller scale, but now we're doing, so far we've had five to 10 instruments in the lab so far. And we're, so that's one important thing to note about preliminaries studies is that it's not peer reviewed yet. And then also we haven't been able to do multiple tests with each person. So every time a person plays, there's going to be some variation that we can't control. So we have to see what it looks like from day to day because there might be some differences. So we've gotten like um, trombone, trumpet, clarinet, oboe, flute, a singer, saxophone, all in the lab so far. And we want to have those people come back into the lab, but we're also going to be having a tuba come into the lab of a bassoon player, like um, even some people who do musical theater uh, to see if there's any difference in like if someone's performing a lot, a monologue that involves a lot of yelling, or maybe you have music that has some, a mixture of music of singing and speaking and how that may change the amount of aerosols being produced as well as mitigation strategies for those. So it's been a like a very wide uh, amount of work and we're trying to find a way how do we narrow it down to get the most important information out first. So mm. because marching band is the first thing that happens for schools, we wanted to first say what happens with some of the instruments involved in marching band and what are some um, ideas we have about marching band and then moving into um, what's happening in schools as well. So that's kind of the progression. Gotcha. And when you guys are having your instrumentalist uh play different things do you have like set excerpts or set techniques that you want them to play or are they just kind of playing whatever they feel like how do you guys handle that so a lot of our schlaren um imaging what we have them do is play a slow chromatic scale because what we've noticed is some notes project a lot more volume than others for instance first position b flat on a trombone has a lot more like a lot larger like puff of aerosols and we think it's because the, it's the shortest distance that mm. you can be on a trombone. So we're looking at that, but we also have all the um, all of them are playing the same piece of music that was written specifically for the study, um, where it's an exercise that first starts with a 
chromatic scale in um, quarter notes, all like basically the entire range of the instrument. So the clarinet goes all the way up to the high G, which I was, um, I found it hard to play <laughs> myself, but at least the person that we got to do it could play it easily. <laughs> um, and then um, we got, then there's a part that has more of like a slow corral almost type of feel to it with a lot of um, slurs, um, slurring. And then there's a part that's more arpeggios um, and staccato. So we try to have like a range of what the instrument can do to see. And then there's, I think every instrument has just like a, a, like a long forte high note. So like getting all of that in it to see on average, what would a musician be producing um, aerosol wise? Um, so just to clarify, you guys aren't studying like the transmissibility of the virus. You're specifically looking at aerosols, correct? Right. So one thing that my advisor, Shelly Miller, she was um, petitioned the, the World Health Organization with a whole bunch of other scientists saying that, you know, this virus, COVID-19, can be aerosolized and you can tr- get it. Tr- it can be transmitted through the air. So it's important to understand all those aerosols that can get into the air. Um, and some of those aerosols are from playing musical instruments. We don't know what the viral loading is when playing a musical instrument. But like if you have a certain amount of virus com- that you're breathing out, that can then be transmitted via those little droplets that are produced when you're playing into the air. So we're concerned about the amount of aerosols because then we can take it to the um, researchers at the University of Maryland who are doing a CFD model and Wells-Riley modeling, which is basically like the risk of transmission based on how much virus there is likely to be in those aerosols and how it spreads in a room. Could you explain a little bit for people that maybe aren't familiar uh, with the concept of viral load? Because I think some people think if they get like a single, a single specimen of virus, like on their body, they're going to get sick. Yeah. So Viral loading is like every there you have to ingest a, enough of the virus for your immune system to not be able to fight it off. And then you get sick. Um, there's still a lot of research being done to figure out what that threshold is for COVID-19. So that's why having something with our study where we're just looking at the amount of aerosols overall, once there's research that's done that says, oh yes, this is like how much viral loading is in like an average breath, we can then or an average cough or average speaking, we can then translate that to the likelihood of you getting sick by being next to someone for a certain amount of time. Yeah, you like you're probably not going to get sick from just one like virus, right? You, it's going to take a little bit more than that, but it's just how much of that is still up for debate. I think. Um, could you describe uh, like the types of aerosols? I, I've seen some some things. I was looking at uh, an NPR article that was talking about aerosols and the virus mm-hmm. transmission. And it, there seemed to be some debate on what an aerosol is or like how big the particles need to be to be considered an aerosol. What kind of definitions would, would be helpful for the layperson when reading about this? I think the easiest definition of an aerosol is just it's either a gas or it's um, so it's a solid or a liquid that's suspended in a gas. So imagine like seeing, you know, really small microscopic dust particles everywhere, like you're breathing in pollen, like, you know, things like that are suspended in the air that you can ingest that are not gases, but are solids and liquids. So in this case, we're looking mostly at water droplets, right? Cause that's like what your spit is. It's very, really, really tiny water droplets. And I think a lot of the research has shown that about one micron is the size of a particle that can be really easily 
um, spread the virus and transmit it through the air and stuff. So some of our instruments go all the way down to um, like 100 nanometers. So about 120 or so nanometers is the size, the diameter of the virus. So we're looking at that end of things because you could have the virus just floating around without any water, but it's more likely that you'll have a little bit of spit with that virus that then helps then, then like keeps it a lot like more active longer in the air that then you can ingest. Mm. So that's something that's important to think about. So we're looking at the size range that the virus is all the way up through about, so our instruments actually go up to 20 micrometers, but we've seen it mostly in like the 10 micrometer um, range. So 60 nanometers to 10 micrometers. So it's a very, very large range, but they're all very, very tiny particles. Like you can't see any of them really. But you guys are also measuring like the larger water droplets. Is that correct? Yes. Those are, can be sometimes a little bit harder to measure because they can fall out of the air faster due to gravitational settling. But then the smaller ones like can actually like stay in the air longer. But yes, we are, we're seeing like a really wide range of particles. As far as uh, uh, the, sh- is it Schlieren test? Is that, is that how you pronounce that? Yeah, Shalaran. Shalaran, yeah. Shalaran test. Okay, so I saw the YouTube video um, mm-hmm. with the the different instruments, and uh, is it is it like a system of mirrors? Is that how that works to like show so, the gas flow? So what happens is there's it's really actually it's quite cool. There's a light that we have directed at a mirror, and it's passed through a little opening, so it like focuses on the mirror. And whenever you have, um, so whenever you have a change in heat of the air it changes the refractive index of the air. So light bends kind of like light going from like into water. Like you can clearly see a bend in the light. Um, right. Like you can, if you were to try to get a fish in the water, like it would look like it's in a different location than it actually is because the light bends. This is the same thing except happening on a much um, harder scale for our eyes to see, but the, our camera system and that mirror, we can pick it up. So it's really cool. Like you can see, so your, your, air coming out of your body is hot. So you can see that in the air, um, like as the heat um, changes the refractive index of the air. Yeah. Actually, um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'm going to screen share. Uh, mm-hmm. And I have I have the video here. Let's see. Um, so I was looking at, uh, at the video, I'll just be for now, of playing the clarinet by the bell and, mm-hmm. and just kind of playing some different notes and seeing uh, the airflow come out. Mm-hmm. And then when it goes to this clip of playing up by the keys, uh, okay, so to me, it looks like a lot of movement is due to body heat also. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. So when we're looking at um, near the keys, you really have to be focused on the keyholes that like here where you see that I am like kind of being strange with my fingers and like putting them down. We want to see like, is there a jet coming out the key below the one I'm playing? So like when I'm playing... Um, like a C, you can see like on the the hole with the B that there's like a little jet that comes out. Um, so we're looking at much smaller movements because yes, a lot of that is the heat from the clarinet being warm because I'm playing with like it's been warm for a while and my hands also being warm. Gotcha. So I know a lot of band directors we we got they saw this part of the video where we go to the bag <laughs> and yeah. they instantly started freaking out and they're like, do we have to have everyone bag all of their instruments and you know, there was there was a lot of like uh, fretting on the middle school band directors Facebook group in particular. Um, what did you guys find out about playing with the clarinet in a bag? Um, 
So from a an aerosol perspective, it was very effective. And same with like the flow perspective, like you can see a little bit coming out of the armholes. Mm-hmm. From a player's perspective, it was terrible. Um, <laughs> and I wouldn't recommend it because my fingers would ke- like kept getting caught underneath the fabric. Mm-hmm. My hands got really sweaty over time because I'm playing in a bag and the all the air inside is really warm. Um, so overall, like I, and then I could see like middle school band directors, like you're not going to be able to get kids to figure out where their hands are if they're playing in a bag. So we're trying to reach out to the community about other solutions that are, could have a similar effect of a bag Mm -hmm. without being a bag, because we know that it's impractical, but I was just trying to, I was sent the bag in the mail to try to test it out. And I was like, sure, I'll (laughs) see what it looks like. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I wanted to ask about um, this paper. Okay, so uh, all all of these these notes here. Um, could you explain exactly what this chart means? Because I, I find it to be a little bit confusing on um, what mm-hmm. was being measured and where in relation to the player. Yeah. So anything that so I first initially I wanted to like probe the instrument by having the player play in different locations to see if where aerosols would be highest. So you can see the little, that peak, the, the first big peak, I was playing yeah, near the bell. So I had the probe of my aerosol measurements right at the bell of the instrument. Oh, okay. This, the second one where it says scales near the keys, I was playing chromatic scale again, but this time I was having it near the keyholes to see what the aerosols coming out of that looks like. Um, and then I played it more at the bell again. So just like trying to get another replication. And then... When I say play near the bell, like the rest of the time, I'm playing the song um, that we had picked out for everyone. So the with the whole chromatic scale, the arpeggios, the all of that stuff, instead of just a like whole chromatic scale and whole notes. So what is the difference between play with pantyhose and play with bell cover? So um, I actually had a a screen that I had in front of my, so it was like a like a screen that had multiple layers of pantyhose on it um oh like that kind of like kind of like a pop filter like not not attached um, to the instrument yeah something similar to that but um one thing to know is it made it so that the aerosols couldn't go into the inlet as well but they could still go elsewhere in the room so having something that covers the bell is overall better because you then you're trapping it more um but that was more of like testing the material um compared to testing like that setup um then I, the next thing that I did was I, we had everyone read um, a short passage. So you can see the, air, the amount of aerosols produced from playing the clarinet is definitely higher than just simple talking, mm. um, which is the part where we say, okay, it's important. If we don't think that, you know, playing an instrument as bad, is as bad as coughing, but it is worse than normal conversation. And that's where we need to make sure that we're careful um, because if it's, worse than normal conversation. And we know that people have gotten sick from normal conversation. We need to take it seriously. So the rest of it is just like, yeah, playing again near the bell and near the keys and just seeing like what this, they look like. And then you can see playing in the bag. You Mm -hmm. don't really see much there. Um, But it's also not very practical. Gotcha. Oh, sorry. You may hear my uh, three month old in the back a little bit. <laughs> he's he's a little tired at the moment. Well, I actually I wanted to ask you a couple specific questions about flute because um, mm-hmm. I, I I only saw I think 
one or two graphs on that same PDF about Floop, but I didn't see any videos yet. Are those forthcoming? Yes. So when we did the Floop videos, our Schlaren imaging wasn't fine-tuned enough to see everything. It was like there was a lot of background noise, so it was hard to actually see the plumes very easily, mm-hmm. which is why like we, you could still see them, but they, it was harder compared to like the clarinet or the trombone, which is why we haven't published them yet and why we want to redo them for the flute before we share them with everyone. Um, yeah, but it was inter- the flute was interesting because I like we didn't really didn't see as much as we thought we would. Um, yeah. And we do have a couple of hypotheses about that. One hypothesis is that, well, one, the flute is very directional and flute players tend to drift downwards or like they change where the, like it's, it was really hard for her to keep in line where the aerosol measurement was. Um, so it was hard to actually capture that plume very easily. Same with like near her mouth. It was hard for her to like keep it in like a good position. Also flutes don't have like a wet vibrating surface. So like a reed, right, is wet and vibrating. So that can like really like knock aerosols off into the air. Hmm. Your vocal cords are a wet vibrating surface that can like knock, right? Same with like when you're playing a brass instrument, you're now it's just your lips instead. The flute is relatively dry in comparison. So it might make sense that we don't expect as many aerosols from a flute. Yeah, I've seen some pictures of uh, some bands, I think out in Texas, that have these like massive plastic face shields that they like strap on to the flute player's head. Um, and, and I was looking at that thinking, well, isn't isn't the air just going to bounce off the shield and then just go to the people behind them? Like, are you guys testing face shields? And what are your if you are, what are your thoughts on their effectiveness? We haven't been testing face shields. And also, and one thing with face shields is like your face shield, it can't go all the way down to the ground. Right. It can like aerosols. The, the flow of the air can also go below the face shield. Like it's not it, face shields are. I think they've been shown that they're not as effective as masks. Like they're good when. Um, let's say a doctor wears a mask and then a face shield on top of it for extra protection, but they don't just go in with a face shield. Like you, they have the mask um, on. So it's important to note that face shield, like I'm not sure how much testing of face shields will do in the future, but we don't think it's as nearly as effective as having some sort of fabric um, covering like a face mask that actually can trap those aerosols a bit better. Gotcha. Actually, I had a question about that. Let me go back to my screen share. So the trumpet chart says something about playing with a mask. Here, look at my highlighter there. Uh, play, yeah. play with a mask while wearing the trumpet. Like, I'm a little confused. Like, I know you guys did some stuff covering the bell, but did you also have them wear a face mask with like a hole cut in it? Like, wh- what yeah. does that mean? So that's what that was. It was like a surgical mask with a hole cut in it. One thing we noticed with that one was like, it was, it's hard to have every single test be done. So like, I couldn't have them test near the bell and also near near his mouth. And it was just too much playing time before they got tired. Um, So this was playing with a mask, but sampling near the bell of the instrument, you can still see that there's a lot of lot coming out near the bell. Um, I did see some aerosols come out near the mouth, but not as much as near the bell of the instrument. So this right here, this, um, this spike, this is no covering on the end of the bell but yes, correct. mask. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So from at least from what I can tell here, and correct me if I'm wrong, it looks like covering the bell, if, if you're going to do anything, covering the bell is the most effective thing, but having a mask with a slit can help also. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's good. To, I think that it's always good to just be overly cautious and have a mask if you can wear one. Um, 
but then yeah a bell cover is definitely effective because a lot of those aerosols come out the end of the bell so from a practical standpoint as far as uh the classroom setting goes uh, would you think it would be more effective for the the players, say um, brass and and reed players, for example, to have a mask with a slit in it that they play and then remove, or would it be more effective for them to have a full mask with no slit in it that when they're done playing they reattach to their face? So if they're like asking questions or something, there's there's no hole for the the air mm-hmm. to get out of. I think that that's something that we're still um, in the process of con- like figuring out what exactly we want to tell people. So. I don't think that I want to answer that question in full because that's something that we were talking about maybe um, in the next couple of weeks, releasing more to the public on the, the website that we've been publishing to. And I don't know what our stance is on that yet. Um, gotcha. Yeah. I was looking yeah. at, um, it's like, it also involves classroom logistics and stuff. And that's something that I don't have as much experience with. I'm pulling up the, uh, the airborne transmission estimator tool. So I was looking at the the mask efficiencies reducing the virus emission, and mm-hmm. I noticed that it said that the masks that have the exhalation valve have like a 0% effective rate. Is that correct? Yeah. So what happens is those... So a mask that has an exhalation valve is made for people who work in mining. And what it does is allows it for them to... they When they breathe in, none of the dust can enter into their um into their like airways but when they exhale they can still breathe out everything that's in their mouth so it's not really effective because you're still you can still spread stuff to other people oh so it's, it's kind of like a snorkel yeah that's why it's not effective because like sure it might be effective for you personally but it doesn't actually help anyone else so that's why it's not recommended it's much better to have a mask that filters both ways than just one way valve that you're just spreading everything. Yeah, and that's kind of why I asked about the mask with with a slit in it. It's kind of for the same reason. Because if a kid is just having the mask on and then asks a question, is it essentially useless if, you know, if there's a hole right, <laughs> right where the mask yeah. is? I think that what we're trying to do is um, have students wear actual masks whenever they're not playing. And whenever they're talking, they should be wearing masks um, as much as possible in the classroom. Okay, um, I had some questions about this flute graph here. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was similarly a little confused. Uh, it looks quite different than like the the other graphs. Um, and is that because just the spread was not as great? Yeah, if you look at the scale on the y-axis, it goes from zero to sixty, and if you scroll up to the other one, it goes from um, yeah, like zero to eight hundred. Oh, so, wow. So one thing to note is that this data, this one that says CPC, is a um, an instrument that counts all of the particles, mm-hmm. including the ones that are really, really small that can't transmit the virus. So we're actually doing something for the future to modify this instrument, the CPC, to have a narrower range that will only be like um, viral, like potentially viral, like particles. Right now, it's not that. So that's why, like those spikes of eight hundred, we don't expect that all of the all of those are not viral particles, um, or could be viral particles. Like some of those are way too small to contain the virus. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, mm-hmm. one thing I thought that was interesting about this particular graph is that uh, playing close to the uh, near the end of the flute, that that spike was about the same as just packing up and leaving the room. 
Yeah. Well, one thing with packing up and leaving the room, that was when I started to open the door. So then after that, the particle concentration goes up really, really high. One thing to note is all of this was done in a much cleaner room than the average room. So we're actually able to see particles coming from a person. Um, For just a reference, often in a building, like the background concentration might be 700 to 1,000 particles per cubic centimeter. And you can see that this is fluctuating around 30. So we were able to drop the concentration of this room by using HEPA filters by a lot. Um, And then do our experiments to actually see if we saw any fluctuations. Um, Well, actually, while while you bring that up, uh, I had a question about a lot of a lot of band rooms have windows or outside doors, but there's also mm-hmm. the HVAC system that's going. Um, d- is there any like school of thought on should we open up the outside windows and doors or should we just let the HVAC system do its thing? Or does it depend on what kind of filtration the HVAC has built into it? So one thing I think that natural ventilation and opening up as many windows as possible is always a good option. Because what you're doing is you're increasing the amount of air that can come from outside that doesn't have as much, like doesn't have the virus, you know, can come into the room and recirculate that air much faster. Often HVAC systems only have an air exchange rate, which is how many times all of the air in the room is cycled and like replaced about three per hour, which is um, quite low, which then would require you to have that HVAC system running for a long time to reduce the concentration. So a lot of build and a lot of buildings aren't necessarily, especially schools who are underfunded, aren't kept up to that standard. So if you have windows, I suggest like opening them, like it it, it never hurts anything to open a window. So one of the recommendations that I saw was that a trombone player should get an additional three feet of space beyond the normal six is that mm-hmm. unidirectional or just, just in front of them in the direction of the bell? That was in front of them. Mostly, um, I the thought of that one was that the slide, um, the valve at the end of the slide, if it's not properly closed, it could like there could be particles that spray from that that could go further than the instrument itself. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And another key thing here as I'm looking through the literature is the amount of time the students spend in the classroom. Uh, can affect, I guess, the viral load or at least the aerosol load of the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I know some people are on like 45 minute classes like me and, and some classes are on like 90 minute blocks where everyone's in the room for 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, and I think I saw that in the in the estimator tool, the the Google sheet about like quantity of time in the room and all of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any other considerations for, you know, if someone's in like a 90 minute class, should they like take a break at 45 minutes and like I'll go outside and come back? Or what do you guys think about that? So a lot of it is like limiting the like time in the room. I think what my advisor was saying was 30 minutes is, so what happens is really when you're dealing with a room, the it's not a linear line of like how much is happening. It's really exponential. Hmm. So the longer you stay in the classroom, like you're really increasing your risk exponentially rather than linearly. So for the first 30 minutes, you know, there's not that much, as much change in risk because the air hasn't been able to go all around the room. But as you, as there's more, like a lot of people in this room that are expelling particles that is not properly ventilated very well, that risk can increase with time. So it's better to veer on the side of shorter classes or taking breaks 
um, not having people play for being in a room playing for long stretches of time because that can increase the, the risk. Um, so I, I saw a recommendation for teachers to keep their volume low, even if wearing a mask. Um, what have you guys found out? Uh, or And you may still be in the process of looking at the vocal stuff, but what have you found out about even while wearing a mask, what the transmission and aerosol rates are for the person who's talking? So we haven't really been looking into that ourselves. I think that was more from looking at other research studies. Okay. But yeah. So I don't have too much to say about that. It was just more recommendation from other studies. And we know that the the louder you talk, the louder you play your music, the louder you sing, the more aerosols you'll produce. So it's better to try to limit um, volume as much as possible in that way. So, you know, you guys still have a, a lot of stuff that you're looking for. What's what's kind of the next thing that you guys are tackling? So what we're doing moving forward, forward is completing the instruments. So you've seen the document, the instruments that we've shown so far. We want to expand on that list. So the tuba, bassoon, we had an oboe player come in, trombone player to play for aerosol measurements, things like that. So we want to com- kind of complete that preliminary data set. And then we want to move to a different way of characterizing the aerosols. Just it, There's a lot of variations in our measurements. And I think a lot of it comes down to how the streamline moves in the room with that, like you can see on the Schlaren, that is really hard to capture. So we're trying to adjust our experimental setup to get a better reading for all of these instruments. Um, and then comparing that with how much people are respiring and kind of coming up with emission rates of those um, that our team in Maryland can take our emission rates and put them into computational fluid dynamics models, which basically just show how air flows in a space. So either in a room or outside, and then that can translate to the risks involved. I know a lot of my choir friends are, are also anxiously awaiting some guidelines. Um, you guys are also looking at, at choir scenarios too. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. One thing that we saw, it was really interesting seeing like the flow visualization data for, did you watch it of this of the the singer? Yeah, where different, and even me saying the alphabet, different letters shoot off in different directions, right? So it was, it was really cool to see that. But um, one thing that we recommend right now is masks are important and limiting the rehearsal time, but also mm-hmm. being outdoors is better than being indoors. So I think that's kind of the rule of thumb that we've come up with so far. Like being outdoors is better than being indoors. Um, wearing a mask is preferable always to not wearing a mask. Um, so that's those are some of the the guidelines that we're thinking about now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of choir programs, just picking up, you know, your music and walking outside is is a very convenient option versus like band having music stands and instruments and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, and the reason why I bring up uh, vocalists is because uh, in a lot of band rooms, we use singing with our students. We do a lot, a lot of singing, um, especially in, in brass. Like we sing something and then we buzz it on the mouthpiece and then we and then we play through the instruments. And I was like, oh, well, if, if singing really is like super transmissible, you know, we have to kind of think about that in our band room, um, especially, mm-hmm. you know, if even wearing a mask, if singing is still like relatively hazardous, that's, you know, that's something like a lot of us are concerned about right now. Yeah. I also think you brought up the buzzing with the mouthpiece on the brass. We haven't tested that yet, but I suspect that it would produce a lot of aerosols. 
And that might be a technique that would be maybe something that they could do at home or like if there could be like a way to do it, not in the classroom, because it seems like there's no way to easily cover that with a mask compared to like the bell of a trumpet. But also there's not, because the tube is much shorter, it is you, it's, there's much fewer losses in the inside of the trumpet, right? Mm. Like trumpets are notoriously bad for having a lot of condensation buildup. Um, and that can't really happen with the, they're really short, like there's not as, there can't be as many losses in a really, really tiny short pipe. So. Um, do you have anything else that you feel uh, I may have overlooked that you want to highlight for music teachers out there? Um, I think one thing that's really important that we'll be doing um, in the next coming weeks is it's not just important to have something covering the bell, but the material is really important. We'll, we'll um, address this further in the next few weeks. I'm going to do some tests myself, but um for instance, I, there was a player that came in the other day with like a very thin spandex um, type of bell cover that was really stretchy and you could see like the holes kind of forming and that's not going to be effective. Um, it, apparently it was designed to be as breathable as possible, but unfortunately if something's really breathable, you're not capturing any of those aerosols. So mm. we have, that's why we're trying to figure out what materials work best that are still breathable enough for musicians to play with because we can't go the complete breathable route because then you're not really doing anything. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because my Facebook feed is already full of capitalist vultures who are like, buy our trumpet covers. And I've got all these ads now on whenever I go to Facebook. <laughs> so, and I have no idea what material you know they're using. So I'm, I'm glad you bring yeah. that up that maybe everyone should wait. Yeah, I would definitely <laughs> wait. Um, we're going to be discussing this in the next couple of weeks. So I would wait um, before everyone goes out and buys whatever material they think is good. We'll have a little bit more guidance on that going forward. So, you know, don't buy something that is and feel like you're getting more protection than you are because that's less safe. Awesome. Well, I, I do have a series of questions I usually ask every guest, but since you're not a band director, I think I'll have to narrow it down to just one question. <laughs> um well, actually, uh, you know, since since you do play music, you might be able to answer some of the other ones. Okay, so question number one that I ask every guest is, do you have a mentor shout out? Um, I say, yeah, my mentor, Shelly Miller, she has been um, an amazing advisor on this project. And what I really like is that she's like, you can take it and you can run with it. And like, we'll give you a lot of support, but that I'm able to do a lot of the work that a lot of um, grad students just starting out can't do as much work and that I have a lot of freedom and the directions and stuff and a lot of input on the project. So it's been really awesome working with her. Awesome. All right. Number two, do you have a favorite band piece? I always liked playing um, Radetzky March um, in band, mostly because um, our, so we had, a, we had a guest band director who came in um, just to volunteer and it was, he was like 85 years old his favorite piece ever. And he just like lit up every time that we played this, this piece at the um, winter concert. And he would just be like, like really like going with it with the crowd and like getting everyone to clap along. And it was just like a, an awesome time. That's really fun. Okay. And lastly, number three, um, I normally ask, uh, name a band director who you think is crushing it right now, but in your line of work, perhaps you could name a researcher or professor or another grad student who you think is crushing it right now. Um, I just like a shout out to my whole team. Like it's been awesome working with all of them. So 
like my advisor, Shelly Miller, but also Jean Hertzberg has been leading all of the um, Schlaren imaging and more imaging to come has been really awesome to work with. And um, the, another grad student on the project, Abhishek, Samir, like they're all awesome to work with. Uh, Darren, uh, Nina, like basically everyone on my team has been really great at providing input and everyone comes with their own skill set. So it's been great working with everyone. Well, you've been very generous with your time, so I'll let you get going. But this has been very, very delightful. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. If you would like to see the video of this podcast episode or check out the documents that we discussed, check out the show notes or go to theflyingbaton.com. I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for joining us on The Flying Baton. Remember, may your tone be dark and your humor light.